Welcome to Daily Confidence for Entrepreneurs. In this episode, you will discover how to take responsibility for your life, how to set your mind to do anything, why you don't need too much planning, and the fact that you just need to take a step and you will watch yours truly get exposed and coached by my friend Don Siclari. Well, as usual, if you're watching or listening, please make sure you like and subscribe to the show. If you um, have a friend that could benefit from the topic, today we're talking about top three ways merchant processors rip you off and more. So if you're anyone that uh, needs to learn about that, they're working with different merchant processors and they need some education and information on how to protect themselves and how to minimize their expenses and the rest of it, have them join us and, and or send the link to the show to them if you're watching or listening. My guest today is Don Siclari. Welcome, Don. Thank you, Mustafa. How's your day so far? It's pretty bomb, to be honest. <laughs> Fantastic. So let me let me do the proper introduction to Don, and we're going to dive into a very interesting conversation. Don Siclari is an entrepreneur, flight medic, and functional medicine practitioner, martial artist, world traveler, and a spiritual seeker. Realizing he didn't want to live beholden to other people's schedules, he started his first business in check.net. While a student at Miami University with $250 in his bank account for the purpose of creating freedom in his life to pursue his passions. Today, in check is a seven figure payment processor, and Dunn lives on two continents, has dual citizenship, and has traveled to 50 countries. He continues running in check, sees patients for functional medicine consults, and travels to train with his spiritual teachers while enjoying the bliss of being in his dream relationship. Welcome, Don. Thank you. How was your day so far? It's going pretty well. Just uh, sitting in a Starbucks here in Cincinnati. Love it. What's the weather like where you're at right now? Um oppressively hot and humid i learned something yesterday cornfields sweat and corn sweat creates this like tropical level of humidity in the midwest <laughs> interesting yeah. interesting so before the show you told me that you're on a street where you had a story there yeah so when i started in check i was a student at miami university which is about 45 minutes from here in oxford ohio and we started with processing bad checks and i didn't have a business network or anything like I have now. So I had to go out and knock on doors. So the first doors I knocked on were on this street in Cincinnati where I am right now. And I remember one particular time, I literally didn't have enough money to pay for gas to get home. I told myself I need to sign somebody with a setup fee today to get back to campus. (laughs) And that was on this street that I'm, the timing just happened to work out. I'm on a road trip across the country. And I just happen to be right here on this street. Wow. For your, for your show. That's very interesting. So, Don, what is the rest of your story? What's the backstory? Where did you start? What, what has the journey been like? And where are you at today? Well, when I was a kid, there were four things I wanted to be a businessman, a priest, a doctor, and a warrior. And in one way or another, all four of those archetypes are still alive in, in my life. So, what happened was when I was in college, I was on a pre-med track. I, did, I grew up in a pretty struggling, poor family. I wasn't getting any assistance from my family or anything like that with college. So I was working as a firefighter EMT, making about 
four or five hundred dollars a month at that point, uh, which was enough to pay for gas and you know food and beer and whatnot. Um, but my interests were mainly outside of college. I was spending a lot of time training with my martial arts teacher who was in the area and going to paramedic school concurrently with my junior year. And then I got an opportunity to work at a local business that a friend of mine on the fire department's mother had uh, given him a quarter of a million dollars to start a company utilizing this new technology to process bad checks. And he said, hey, you have a good personality. Why don't you come try sales? Well, I'm living on nothing and don't really know where I'm going other than, you know, the plan was to apply to medical school and take on a whole bunch of debt and come out working shifts as an ER doctor. And no matter how much I love emergency medicine, I realized at that age, you know, if I was having to do it to pay off my loans, it would probably get old. And so I said, sure, I'll, I'll give this a try. And I did well. Um, I was bringing a lot of accounts in. And at some point, I, I realized I could, I could do this myself. I had a bigger vision for what I wanted to do. And the idea for me wasn't necessarily to make X amount of dollars. It was to create a lifestyle of a freedom to pursue the passions that really drive me. Um, and I had $250 in my account, which allowed me to buy a $99 fax machine on clearance. And I set up a relationship with somebody who could process the checks and pay me a commission. So I, I bought that fax machine, made a, a black and white, you know, we called a fax package at that time, advertisement, and started faxing it out to random businesses who took a lot of checks. And then um, did that for a while, went back to Connecticut. Uh, my father gave me some office space in his office. He was an accountant. Um, ran in check while I was working as a paramedic to support myself. And then around 2008, 2009, when the economy hit, people stopped taking checks. You know, big giants like Walmart put some of my independent grocery chains in the Midwest out of business. And we kind of hit financial rock bottom. So at that point, I restructured uh, into electronic payments, which I saw as a more viable future than check processing. Love it. That's a great story. And so um, there's like, there's the evolution of going through the, uh, the, the processing checks. I, and I, I don't think checks are being used as much today as they were back 20 years ago. Not even close. I mean, some, but very rare. I mean, so I back, back then it was like, you know, Grocery stores took a lot of checks, especially in the Midwest and the South. Pizza delivery didn't have electronic, you know, online orders through with credit cards and such back then. Yeah. Things, industries you wouldn't think of like school photography, you know, parents would send their kids into school with a check for the, the photos and book clubs for schools and things like that. So those were the industries we focused on. But slowly over time, as payment processing technology evolved and proliferated, checks become kind of irrelevant. 100%. I remember back in the day, I used to manage a pizza place and on delivery, we would get a print of the credit cards and bring it back to the store, running through the machine. And uh, we didn't have those, uh, you know, the debit machines that people carry with them today. Now we have, you know, I offer an app that our clients can put on, on their smartphone and swipe a card or tap a contactless card right through the phone. So <laughs> a lot's changed. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> a lot has changed. So what do you do these days and who do you serve? So interestingly, in 2015, I kind of stepped away for a bit. I hired a vice president who took over the reins and ran the business. I moved to the UK, went back to school, got back into the medical field. And then uh, the pandemic came around and it hit us kind of hard because we have a lot of clients and travel and events, you know, and, and industries that were hit hard by the pandemic. And the 
pandemic actually cost me that vice president. So I'm back to running things myself where we're on a real growth curve again. Now our, you know, majority of our clients are internet marketers, coaches, um, info products, things like that online. We do do retail, uh, but primarily we serve higher risk, higher volume e-commerce businesses. Love it. And so how do you serve them? We set, we set up and provide all the payment processing technology. So we provide the merchant account, we provide the chargeback processing and uh, mitigation services. We provide the gateway technology. It's a pretty much a turnkey solution. That is awesome. So, so you were going over to the, the, the story on how checks kind of became obsolete and they weren't being used. And then you did some restructuring, got into electronic payments. Mm -hmm. What's the story there and how did you start uh, in check? Well, in so in check, interestingly, was a, a, a logo. So originally the name of the company was Fudo Financial Corporation. I was like 19 and I thought having a company with the words financial corporation would sound important. <laughs> and, and then it, in check was because the idea was we keep your bad checks in check. So we created this logo for in check and I liked the logo so much and, and I didn't feel like rebranding that when we, when we restructured, I just turned that logo into an LLC and made it the name of, of the company. They just kept the same name with the same trademark, server. essentially. Yeah, I mean, I I, I phased out the corporation and started an LLC called Incheck and kept that trademark and that logo and kept it for our merchant processing. Love it. So, for for the people that don't understand merchant processing, because I know you're in the business, tell us what merchant processing actually is. So. Essentially, here's how I like to explain it. When you go to, um, say, a store and you buy a coffee at Starbucks or whatever, right? You take your credit card and you either tap, swipe, or insert it into a little machine at the point of sale. That machine transmits your card data through the Visa MasterCard card networks. There's a few more steps involved, but the technical details aren't, aren't all that relevant. To what's called the acquiring bank. There's two banks involved in this in any transaction. There's the issuing bank, which is the bank name that's on your card. If it's a debit card or a credit card, maybe it says Chase or Wells Fargo or you know whatever. That's the bank that issues your credit card. The acquiring banks are more unheard of. Those are the banks that we partner with that acqu essentially acquire the transaction. So when you go to Starbucks and you run your card, that machine transmits that data to the bank that Starbucks is essentially contracted with to process their cards. There's a communication that happens between the issuing and acquiring banks. The money gets moved. It leaves your account, settles into the merchant's account. That's why it's called a merchant account. Um, and then what we there's another step when it comes to the internet. It's called a payment gateway. And the way I describe that is it's essentially a credit card terminal for the internet. It does the same thing. It takes the card data from your customer on their website transmits it to the same network and the same behind the scenes settlement happens. Got it. Um, I was talking to a buddy of mine and uh, uh, he was thinking that he needs to get his payment machines from, from his bank. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that a common thing that you 
that people think they need to go to their local bank and say, hey, I need a machine or. Oh. Yes and no. So the, in the U.S., the banks contract with third party processors like us. Some of the banks okay. provide direct acquiring services like that. But by and large, the banks stay away from higher risk stuff and they allow companies like us to do it because we hold the risk. So you can go to your bank and get a machine or you can come to a company like mine and get a machine. And there's there's not really any difference other than in terms of the technical aspect of things. The differences come in in terms of the service. And what is the difference for if, if someone goes to you versus they go directly to a bank? Well, we we're a little bit different than most in that I scaled this way rather than this way. So rather than, you know, I, I don't use sales agents. I don't have 20,000, you know, mom and pop restaurants in my portfolio. I pick and choose my clients and they all come in through my networks like JVMM, you know, like you and I are part of. Um, so therefore, we're able to provide an intensive customer service experience. Most of my clients I know personally. Um, the rest, my staff know personally. So we are able to provide answers very, very quickly. Okay. So they get, they get the better customer service because, because I guess with bigger companies, if I go to them, I would probably be a needle in a haystack or, you know, they there, probably there's, two, me there's two things I can say about that with bigger companies you're probably not going to talk to a decision maker. You're going to call into a customer service number and be put on hold and talk to somebody who's, you know, is a typical customer service rep, or you're yeah. going to go to the sales agent who sold you, but that sales agent doesn't have any, any pull with the processor. He's just a, a middleman. He or she's just a middleman, right? So with a script, uh, with a script. So when you work with a company like ours, you're talking to the sales guy and the risk guy and the decision maker kind of all in one. Love it. And then, so what is the, the geographic area of people that you serve? So primarily United States, we do have overseas relationships and I do have a number of uh, foreign clients that I've helped get set up in the U.S. with companies and operating agreements and so forth to be able to process in the U.S. So I, essentially we focus on U.S. business, but in a way I, I can serve the whole world. So could you serve customers in Canada or do you mm -hmm. work with yep. Canadian banks? I have a Canadian relationship. Yes. And European EU relationship. Oh, nice. Nice. So we talked about the top three ways that people get ripped off by their merchant processors. Could you share mm -hmm. with us what some of, what some of those ways are and share with us what people could do to avoid that situation or, or how to fix it? Well, the, the first thing is that I think um, if you're new to merchant processing and you haven't run a large or high-risk business, you wouldn't really know what the pitfalls are that you're looking for. Um, oftentimes, risk management becomes problematic for merchants because if you don't have a direct relationship with your processor and they don't know who you are and what you're doing, uh, we have all kinds of automated algorithmic risk management tools. And all it takes is a transaction getting flagged Somebody sitting in a cubicle in another state or another country, you know, can freeze your funds, can choose to hold your funds, can put a reserve on the account, meaning that a certain percentage is diverted uh, into their bank account rather than yours as a safety mechanism. And this won't be communicated to you because there's no direct relationship. You'll notice that, you know, you're, you're missing a deposit and then you'll call and wait on hold and try to get answers from customer service who has to talk to risk. 
we kind of skip all that because we do the risk management directly. So we're very transparent about it. I know what you're selling and who you are. And when something flags, I can call you and we can discuss it. and We can go from there. So risk management is probably the biggest way, uh, the biggest way that merchants get blindsided by payment processors because they're not expecting it. And so I've had a number of clients, you know, with Stripe and some of the kind of turnkey, what we call aggregators, because they're not underwriting a merchant account directly for you. They're kind of dumping you into a pool. Um, and then when something goes haywire, all of a sudden you're missing a deposit, they're holding funds and getting it from what I hear, I've never worked with Stripe directly, but getting answers is near impossible. So from the clients of mine that have converted, that's that's what I hear. So transparent risk management is definitely a big factor why our clients come to us and stay with us. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I haven't been a victim of my my funds being held, but I've heard quite a few stories with other famous processors where, you know, someone worked on a launch for like a year or two and they did a three hundred thousand dollar million dollar launch that they were dreaming about, and all of a sudden the the payment processor processor was like holding it for like six months. Well, launches are particularly quirky. Launches need to be planned. If you don't, if you're not coordinating your launch with your payment processor, they're going to freeze your funds because if an account goes from zero to five hundred thousand dollars overnight, that's a big risk flag. And if if it's not expected, if they don't know that that's what's coming, the funds are going to be held. So we handle launches in a particular way where everything is coordinated and we're prepared for it. For sure, for sure. I'll, I'll get back into that, but is there any other way that people get ripped off and they don't know about it? A hundred percent. So most of the people that merchants will communicate with in the payment processing industry are independent salespeople who are middlemen. And these independent salespeople will, I hate to say it, but lie, cheat, and steal to get their accounts approved. So they, you, you may not have any idea what you're paying. You may be told one thing and have, find out something entirely different later. Um, one of the things I laugh at is I'll get, I'll hear from clients, you know, so-and-so pre-approved me. Well, so-and-so is a salesperson who has, who is not an underwriter and has no ability to pre-approve anything. So there's all these terms that get tossed around and they feel good. They sound good. But unless you're working directly with an underwriter at a, a payment processor or a bank directly, you got to take all that with a grain of salt. For sure. So they would say, so what would happen next then? They would tell you that uh, you're pre-approved. Yeah. So where, what, where is the ripoff process? Where is the, where, it, how do, how do I actually get ripped off? <laughs> well, you put in the application and you find out you're actually not approved at all. You're declined. Okay. <laughs> oh, for sure. Okay, yeah. cool. So here's a couple of stories that I've heard. And like you said, people were promised something. Bait and switch. And then when they saw their statement, mm -hmm. they're like, I am paying a ton of fees, this fee, that fee, the, mm -hmm. I don't like your face fee, the, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right. How does that work? We definitely charge an extra fee for ugly faces. <laughs> <laughs> so there, how does that work? And is there a way to avoid it? For sure. There's, there's a lot of different ways to price a merchant account. And there's a lot of different fees that can be built in. For example, there's what's called the discount rate, which is the percentage you're paying on each transaction. There's mm -hmm. a transaction fee, which is the flat 
fee you're paying, the 25 cents or whatever on each transaction. There's your AVS fee, a fee for validating the address, a CVV fee, a fee for validating the three-digit code, four-digit in the case of Amex. There's your chargeback fee, there's your retrieval fee, there's your monthly fee, there's statement fees, there's PCI security fees, there's gateway fees to use the gateway, there's uh, chargeback alert fees, there's the list goes on and on. So, you know, for example, one of the common tricks is that there's a, a pricing structure called three tier. And what that means is that there's about a hundred different categories that Visa and MasterCard uh, classify transactions into, and they all have different costs. So to make it easy, we often just break it down into three different buckets called qualified, mid-qualified, and non-qualified. And without getting too deep into the technical details, let's just say that a debit card would go through as qualified and a, a foreign card, because it's a higher risk, would go through as non-qualified. So a processor may tell you, yeah, we're going to charge you 2.5%, but they're only telling you the qualified rate. And you look at your statement and you're paying 5% for the non-qualified cards, which is pretty normal, but... I, you really should should be aware of that. There's differences and and so forth. All right. Okay. So there. So seems like there's there's a list of different types of fees that could be applied mm -hmm. that I that I may or may not be aware of. Are those negotiable? Yes. Is that with every merchant? Yeah, mostly. Uh, for for the most part. Yeah. I mean, except for like you know some of the the big aggregators like Stripe have flat rate pricing and it's. They came in and they created a flat rate, which people like because they know exactly what they're paying and whether it's too much or too little is another conversation, but but it's it's a flat rate. So there's probably not much negotiation there, but with mm -hmm. most of your traditional merchant processors, there's there's room for negotiation and a lot of it depends on your risk profile. So for example, Tell if us you have, what that means. <laughs> I saw you I saw you thinking there for a second, so I I got the cue. Yeah. <laughs> if you, you know, have credit issues, you're a higher risk profile. You're going to pay more. If you've been blacklisted and put on what's called the match list before, you're going to pay more. If you've been shut down by another processor, you're going to pay more. If your product is in very high risk industries like biz business opportunities, nutraceuticals, some coaching, uh, CBD, things like that you're going to pay more uh, bad credit repair travel. Those all have like, those are all premium high risk industries. If you oh. are running a coffee shop, you're going to pay less. <laughs> God, because people come in, they get their coffee and there's really not much. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to be unlikely to charge back that coffee. Right. So risk For is sure. determined by chargeback potential. Interesting. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, what I mean by that is how I explain this is like this. So I hold the risk on your account, Mustafa. So if you sign up with us and you're launching uh, Mustafa's um, one-year subscription to your coaching program, I'm just making this up, hypothetical, right? And let's say you charge $1,200 for a one-year subscription. Three months into the program, you go, you go out of business, you shut it down, you take your money, you leave the country, you go move to an island and you live happily ever after. Well, all those customers go, well, I have nine months left in this subscription that I paid for. I want my money back. They can't reach you. So they call their bank and they say, you know, I got ripped off here. This is fraud. So then that's called a chargeback. So the chargeback comes through. And the first thing we do is try to take the money back from you. Your account is closed. You took the money and ran. So I'm next on the hook 
for those chargebacks. They come out of my account. So that's where risk happens. Got it. Okay. Got it. So that's for, and, and, I, I, and I've seen this where people, they just, they just call the bank and they're, they're, they claim that there was, this was a false charge or it was a fraud for no reason. So that's, to get a that's refund called friendly it. fraud. And that's a, that's a different, a, a different thing, but that happens a lot as well. Yeah, I have, I have clients in travel who, you know, a, a customer will actually take the flight and then call the bank and try to claim it was an unauthorized transaction or, you know, whatever. And they've already taken the flight. <laughs> Absolutely. And have to, we have to go in and show, show, uh, what's it called? The, the receipts and all the, mm -hmm. all the details that they have actually received the service and the rest Precisely. of it. Right? Yeah. 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 Hmm. Interesting. So you talked about, uh, getting ready for launches. So we, we, we have a bunch of different consultants and coaches in our network that do launches from time to time. A lot of them are just, uh, in early five or six figures and they're trying to plan to grow and scale. How should they get ready for the big launch that they're coming up? But what do they need to do ahead of time to avoid getting their funds frozen and the rest of it. Well, for one, you're going to want multiple accounts. And and I have relationships with eight or nine different banks. So I provide, I mean, I can provide everything for a client from everything they need, multiple accounts and, and balancing between them and among them, et cetera. But you're going to want to communicate with your payment processor if you're going to launch something. Because again, as I said, if the account blows up in volume overnight, it's an automatic algorithmic red flag. The computer will freeze it. So if that's not expected, then then you're gonna you're gonna that money's gonna be held. Um, so you're gonna want to communicate with your payment processor, and depending on the dynamics of the launch, what the product is, the risk, all of that, you work out a strategy together. There may be a reserve involved. Um, there may be no issues at all. Um, if you can do a launch on an existing account, so in other words, if you are let's say you're running uh, fifty thousand dollars a month. And you're launching a new product, and you expect, you know, to go from fifty thousand a month to three hundred thousand in one month, and then back down to say seventy-five because you're launching. That mitigates the risk a little bit because there's ongoing revenue before and after the launch. If you are at zero and you're expecting a million-dollar launch, that's where it gets more complicated. And so we 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 would need to really look at that, work with it, figure out a strategy for how do we mitigate our risk in case the launch doesn't go as planned. Well, for what I'm gathering, the big, big idea is to let your mer merchant know ahead of time that I'm, we're 100%. doing this big launch, be ready for so much money, and then don't mm -hmm. freak out if you see something in my account. And diversify among multiple accounts if it's going to be that big. Like, How do you di diversify that? So if somebody comes to me and they want to do a million dollar a month and they're currently processing 50, maybe I get them three accounts for 330,000 each. I'm kind of just, just making this up. So I provide three different accounts with three different banks and I provide the technology to balance the transaction volume amongst those accounts. Interesting. How would he be handled the front end on the website? Does this get automatically done and get automatically deposited into three different accounts? Well, it'll go into the same bank account. It'll just go through three different merchant accounts. 
So on the front end on the website, there is one button that people use. Yes, to on the check front. End, I'm sorry. Yes, I, I missed the front. But, yes. Yep. There's there's the, no difference on the front end. It's still the same checkout process. The balancing happens on the back end. Interesting. All right. Cool. I, I didn't even know that that is possible. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that that that's actually uh, I think a really cool feature. Hmm, that you do compared to people that use say PayPal or Stripe and those guys. Right. Right. I guess yeah. this would be the solution to avoid getting flagged as mm -hmm. in any way, right? Yep, yep. And so we can automate that balancing for you, we can handle it for you, or we can show you how to do it yourself. Love it. And then how long does it take for someone to switch from Stripe or PayPal over to you guys? It depends on whether it's an easy account or a complex account. Sometimes it takes a day. Sometimes it takes a week. If you know the client is not responding to documentation requests, it takes as long as it takes them to give us what we need. <laughs> what would what would the what would be the complexity factor in there? What are some of the things that would make it a complex versus like a simple? Let's switch well, over. Vo to volume is a big one. I mean, if if you're doing fifty thousand a month, that's a small account. If you're doing you know a million a month, that's a it's a different animal to underwrite. So volume okay. is a big one. The risk profile of the product, what is it? You know, is it a one-year coaching package? Is it an ebook? You know, one-year coaching practice means that there's a liability period for 18 months. The client, the, your client can charge back six months after the last expected date of delivery. If it's an ebook, an instant delivery, it's a different risk because they put their card in and 10 seconds later they have the product. So all these things need to be taken into consideration along with financial history, credit, you know, uh, uh, the traditional KYC, know your client stuff. Got it. So but if they take delivery of your product or service right away, that seems to me like that's a lower risk. Much lower to... risk. It's, it's what we call NDX, non-delivery exposure. The longer the delivery timeframe is, the greater the non-delivery exposure. So if they charge, like like you said, if they, if we charge upfront for a coaching thing, coaching package for a year, then that's a high risk. That's a higher risk. Got it. Okay. Fantastic. So Don, sure, tell us about a little, some of your secrets about how you made a successful seven-figure business over, seems like a short span of time. Uh, not as short as it would have been if I had to do it over again. I was uh, I was a super teenager when I started it. Didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> so oh, like, yeah. if I had to do it over again now, it'd be much bigger, much faster. But my secret is networking. You know, I started networking at a very young age. Uh, when I was in middle school, I remember watching my cousin who was four years older than me. And he he had all these like older friends. He would go hang out with his neighbor who was in his 50s and had a Maserati and, and so forth. And I learned early on that I, that was the secret to life. My first martial arts teacher was very resourceful. He was a bodyguard for several royal families and very, very resourceful and an ex excellent networker. So I copied him as well. And I started networking and building, building networks. And that's how I've grown the company. In the beginning, as I said, it was a matter of knocking on doors and making a lot of cold calls. And I was a teenager and super enthusiastic and doe-eyed. And I'd walk into these businesses and say, you know, I had all these different strategies I would try using NLP and so forth. But the gist of it was, you know, how are you handling your bad checks? And uh, let me help you, you know, but then as, as I, as I grew and evolved and built my networks, now 
most of my clients come in through referrals. They contact me, which is a better a better place to be than having to knock on doors. <laughs> For sure. Are you are you still networking? Well, this, yeah, this right now, this is networking. I'm, I'm talking to you and we're doing this podcast and maybe some of your listeners will be interested and intrigued and reach out. And, and you know, you and I met through a networking group. And to me, that's all networking. For sure. Can you give us some of some tips on networking and people that are watching or listening that they could apply today? Oh, 100%. That has been responsible for you for your success? I used to actually teach a course on, on networking when I was younger. Um, so nice. uh, I find that a lot of people don't think through their network and think through it resourcefully, meaning people don't look at all the people they know and look at them as resources, right? So um, I'm trying to think of, of an example, but there are people in our lives who can provide value, can provide services that we need or somebody that we know needs that we're not thinking about. So my advice is whenever you're talking to somebody, make a note of what they do and what they offer and then immediately think of who else do you know that can benefit from that person's service and if it's not you directly somebody you know will and and i know that's it's kind of vague i used to have an exercise where i would have people write out you know like say 12 people in their lives and what those people do and then within that group of 12 who would benefit from being introduced to somebody that they don't already know so then do you go about introducing people first or do you wait to be introduced? Because I think that's that's some of the internal blocks that I've seen people have with like, I'm going to wait and see if you're going to introduce me to a dozen people that I'm going to think about. you. And I, I, I don't. I make notes of what people do. Like when, when you and I got off the phone and I learned what you do, I filed it in my in my head. And the next time I'm speaking with a client or not a client or any random human in the street, you know, who, who can use your service and it clicks for me, then I go, oh, you need to talk to Mustafa. You know, I was talking to one of our associates in JVMM yesterday and immediately, you know, when I found out what he did, I, I have a client that and connected them immediately. So it's in my head, it's like always ticking opportunity, opportunity, opportunity. You're connecting I, people. I don't wait, regardless of whether they're working with me or their clients, or they may become clients, or they may not become clients. If if they can work together, I'm plugging them in and hoping that they do good things in the world. Love it. And it's like, you just go out there and you you put the good out there, introduce people, network, and and, and be the connector. And they, I'm guessing that they would probably do the same for you. That's what the hope is. You know, you, you hope that it comes back around. and And, but... Um, the more people that you put together, the more opportunity there is all around. For sure. And I've seen it like I, I was a BNI member forever and, I, and I'm part of all different types of networking groups. What I noticed is like, even if you, it, let's say that I'm going to introduce some someone to you and you guys are going to do business. Mm -hmm. I may not necessarily get business or an introduction directly back from you, but because that's what I'm, that's, that's what I'm putting out there. And going back, say to karma, mm -hmm. I may get that from someone else. So what I used to do is, and that's another benefit of being an in-check client. I'm constantly looking at how can I connect my clients. So I used to do a July Fourth uh, dinner cruise in New York City Harbor, where we'd have a live band, catered food, and all that. Before the cruise, I'd have a four-hour mastermind group, 
and everybody who came would have the opportunity to stand up in front of the group and introduce their business and what they do. So by the time they got on the boat, people already knew who they wanted to talk to, and it it just turned into a fantastic evening. I stopped right. doing I stopped doing that when I moved to London because I well a little after I moved to London because I pre COVID I would spend summers in Europe. <laughs> COVID kind of threw everything off, but but yeah. I I still keep that networking in mind. So whenever a client signs on with us, I'm immediately I'm asking them what are your needs, and then thinking who in my network or in my my client portfolio uh, could serve that need. Love it. So we promised people that a few things from this uh, conversation. One one of them was how to take responsibility for your life. What's your take on that, and how do you go about it, and how did that affect you and your business? What was it before? What was the after? Uh, Well, I think that from the time I started my business as a very unsure, you know, teenager, I didn't really have a lot of confidence in my ability to to be an entrepreneur because I didn't know anything about it. I mean, it's not something that I grew up with, you know, but immediately I knew that I wanted to control the outcome of my life. I didn't want to leave it in somebody else's hands. Um, Actually, from the time I was young, I did that. I told my parents what I wanted. I told my guidance counselors in school, which I walk in and hand them a schedule. Everybody else would walk in and, and they would create the schedule for the student. I'd walk in and hand them, this is, this is the classes I want at the times I want, make it happen. You know, so, so I think that it's not something you has to be with you from a young age. Anybody can learn it. But we live in a society where blaming, pointing fingers is, is, a hu- is the way of things, right? So when I lived in Japan, if you're, you know, in a car accident in Japan, the first thing you do out do is get out and apologize and profusely and take responsibility for it. In the U.S., the first thing you do is get out and tell the other person why it was their fault, because the lawyers are gonna, you know, sue them. Yeah, and the lawyers are gonna get involved. So I think that a lot of our blaming mentality honestly comes from the litigious nature of our society. Hmm. So we need to kind of combat that dynamic a bit by realizing that the most important person in charge of my life is me and everything that happens to me is a result of me. And even if that's not, not true in some cases, just doing that exercise, looking at everything, you know, that's going on in your life as a result of an effect of a cause that you've created is a really good, a really good way to start, you know, looking at how do we create and control the outcome rather than be a victim of whatever we want to point the finger at. Very interesting. So just owning, owning what you're doing and, and all of your, one of my martial arts teachers early on said to me that, um, every, every conflict is a conflict with your own ego, even to the extent of getting attacked in a dark alley. And of course I didn't understand that at that age. And, and, you know, we can debate that all day long and yes, bad things happen to good people and all of that. But the, the point was that when you start looking at everything in your life that happens to you, as some kind of an effect of something you've created, it's dramatically empowering. And then there are, you know, the few things that the idiot runs the red light, you know, and nearly hits you and, you know, you're pissed off. Yeah, I mean, that stuff happens, right? But but just that exercise really gives us a lot of personal power. Love it. Yeah, I, 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 I just put a question down. What am I... What things am I not taking responsibility for? And I don't know. To me, that would that would come up with a list of things that 
I'm not taking responsibility for and then I that probably I should. Yeah. I mean it's an exercise that we should all do all the time because we can always improve, right? So hundred percent. Hundred percent. Um how do you go about setting your mindset about we talked about the fact that you need to to set your mind to do anything and that's possible. How, what's your experience on that and how did you do it? Oh, this is a good question. Um, I got a few things to say about this. So first of all, when I was 16, I realized that as people get older, they get more locked into their views and less open-minded to possibility and opportunity. And I made a decision at 16 that I never wanted to be that way. I always wanted to see the world through the mind of a teenager, which sometimes we call the child's mind. So I committed that for the rest of my life, I would always be doing new things. I would always, the world would be my oyster. You know, no matter what age I got to, I would take on new challenges and do new things just as I did when I was a teenager and everything looked, you know, amazing. Like, you know, when we're young, we want to be basketball stars or princesses or, you know, we aspire to all these really lofty things. And then as we go through life, we programming happens and we, oh, I can't do that for this reason or that reason. Or, you know, I would have loved to have, you know, learned to play the guitar, but now I'm, you know, too busy and too stressed. We make all these excuses and that's part of the, the taking responsibility. So the child's mind um, is, is a big part of it. No matter how far you've advanced in any particular arena, there's more to learn. And um, you know, I've talked to a few really advanced martial artists who've been training for, you know, for 50 years in a very high uh, Don Grades black belts in their arts who were, you know, essentially white belts at other, other arts. And that shift into that beginner mindset is very empowering for people who are on that path. Now, a lot of times ego gets in the way and all of that, but that's another conversation. The other thing I wanted to mention is that I had to really shift my my mindset to accommodate success because I grew up with grandparents and parents who, you know, my grandparents were from the depression era. They constantly told me things like, you don't know the value of a dollar, save, save, save. I remember telling, you know, when I was really young, my father had a book on exotic cars. I was like six years old. And I was like, I want a Lamborghini. And until I told my grandmother, I want a Lamborghini. You don't need no guinea. You save your money for college, you know? And those were the answers that I always got, I got shot down with all the things I aspired to, just kind of traditional family and from that generation. So when I started, the check started growing, part of me had some deservedness issues. I, I didn't believe that I deserved, you know, to be a millionaire and to have this, this life that I had actually set out to create. And, um, and so I had to do some mindset shifting around that to accommodate more success and more opportunity. How did you go about mindset shifting? Because that, that's a big deal. And it's, I believe it's a very big problem as people well, don't well, think I, they deserve. I, I'd have to, you know, that was a while ago, but, but it was an ongoing process. One of the first things that happened was this particular martial arts teacher that inspired me to start the company who I mentioned, who was a networking inspiration when I was younger. I asked him, I don't know if I asked him or he just told me, but very early on in my career, how do I sort of think like somebody that has a lot more money than I have, you know? And he said, 
take five $100 bills and put them in your wallet and don't spend them. Just every time you open your wallet, there's $500. And you know, this was 20 years ago. So $500 is worth a lot more than it is now. Maybe now it's 10 $100 bills, you know, whatever. But having that reminder in my pocket, in my wallet is more cash than I am used to begins to kind of shift the unconscious. Interesting. And then there were other things, you know, self-reflection, working with my teachers and coaches and so forth. Um, you know, looking at why, why am I sort of blocking growth to the next level? What's, what's preventing that, you know, from happening? What part of the programming from childhood where you were, you were told you don't know the value of a dollar, save, 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 you know? So you just start to like unwind that, that programming in reverse and reprogram it with where I am now and what I want in my future. Love it. So you talked about, there's a question that I think is very important. And the question was, why am I blocking growth? And then I think if you spend actually, actually spend time, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to do that today. If there's, there's some areas that I feel like um, I need to grow more and there's some certain blockages. And so I want to answer that question. You, you, you have been sharing a lot of good stuff here. Thank you. Um, so the major question, why am I blocking growth? Well, and I'd add one, one more thing to that. Self-sabotage mm -hmm. is a very common trait in America. We sabotage ourselves. And why is probably a longer conversation than we have left in this show. But look for self-sabotaging habits because they're very insidious. And you won't even realize you have them. Here's an example. I have a a friend, um, a very close friend who is blonde and, you know, she's, she's very funny, but she'll often say things like, you know, I'm, I'm retarded. I'm an idiot. I'm blonde. And, you know, and, and she's saying it in jest to be funny, but that kind of language is very programming. Yeah. And I'm the unconscious starts to believe I'm retarded. I'm an idiot. You know, I'm, I'm a ditzy blonde, whatever. So to start to look at the words that you use and those kind of habits that might be self-sabotaging you. Another, another, another really gold nugget here is to take inventory of your inner talk or maybe your outer talk and actually write down the stuff that, that, that is coming I, out. I want to share something. I'm going to pull up my, my phone because I want to pull it out of this message. But a friend of mine who I, uh, I really look up to and, and he, I admire, um, sent me this, uh, this message today. There are some Vedic and late samurai quotes I'll post when they resurface. Essentially, they say, quote, never say a bad thing about yourself, even in jest, end quote. And it has to do with how the unconscious gets programmed. I am, uh, I'm actually going through a book called The Game of Life and How to Play It. And uh, I think it was in a section, the chapter called Karma where he talks about only say or open your mouth about uh, about something along the lines of improvement, success, and and adding positive things out there. And uh, it's very much align al aligned with what you just talked about. Great. Hmm. But so I think a a an objection to that is like that's really tough. I, you know, like, and the natural human tendency is like, man, I got shit to deal with and, you know, got to 
and, and all the stuff that happens and we've been programmed through the media through this and that friends how do you deal like how is that impossible probably that's i'm gonna question. i'm gonna quote my girlfriend here um she was working through some some stuff on her spiritual path recently and i said well unfortunately you know evolution ain't comfortable and she said say it louder for the people in the back <laughs> it's you know it's that's the thing you know getting out of your comfort zone is not comfortable by definition so you have to be prepared for what those moments are going to feel like it's not all you know fun and games and and cakewalk if you want to grow and evolve you got to deal with your shit which is you know your what carl jung would call the shadow side digging into it opening cans of worms can open cans of worms and here's what i tell people you know yes and but don't try to do it all at once i know people that are like you know I'm so obsessed with personal development. I'm not developing fast enough. I got this, this. Don't put so much pressure on yourself. Give yourself room. You have your whole life to do this. So unless you're 92 right now, <laughs> you've got a lot of time to work on this process. <laughs> For sure. But then I think people are always in a hurry to get things done. And I, I will say, that, yeah, on that, patience is... Key. key patience and tenacity <laughs> are the two keys if you're if you're in a hurry you're going to short circuit the process for sure what's your take on planning and when and and what people should do in reaching their goals and visions and dreams and the rest of it i have a little different take on that than most um i don't believe necessarily in setting goals in time Meaning we cannot, we can, cannot is the wrong word. You can do whatever you want. But when we, when we give the universe instructions and demand it conform to the parameters that we put around it, we're limiting ourselves. I'm much more mm -hmm. in favor of having a vision, putting it out to the universe, looking for the opportunities. The biggest key, in my opinion, is taking your foot off the brake. So getting rid of those self-sabotaging habits and then giving the universe room to provide what you've asked for on its terms because it's bigger than us. It knows more than we do. So if I say I want you know, a red BMW 2019 X3 with 21,000 miles on it for $22,000 by next week, <laughs> That's different than saying, you know, I really want a really cool SUV, my perfect car. What do I need to do to have that? And then making the space for it to come along. Absolutely. I think we got to be reasonable, right? So, I, I, so vision boards and, you know, I, I, I'm not opposed to writing out visions and so forth, but I've been to some people's houses where the vision boards are so cluttered. There's so much on there and it's so exact and precise that I don't necessarily tell them this, but I see it and I'm like, this ain't never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Look, you got it a little too complicated here. Interesting. So, but I also hear stories of people that have put vision boards and they've got exactly what they put on their vision board. Mm -hmm. Have you ever yeah. seen that? Absolutely. So I guess the message was there. What you said was to not make it too complicated. Like don't I'm, add like 
there's five different walls and each wall has 12 different vision boards on it. It's like, dude, you're, you're just complicated the process. I've gotten everything on my bucket list in life. I've, I've done everything I've wanted to do so far. And yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible. It's just a matter of, in my opinion, creating the space for it, getting rid of the obstacles that are blocking you and being patient. Yeah, you talk about patience. Is there anything on your on your bucket list that you're like, I wonder why this is not happening? Not that I wonder why it's not happening because I know uh, there are things that I've been set back back from time-wise because the pandemic disrupted a bunch of things. For example, I had a, a vice president running my company for a number of reasons. The pandemic caused, I, I lost him during the pandemic. And so now I'm back to running again. That was not in my plan. So I've had to shift and get back to to running the business again. Um, so th things come along that are outside of our control. So there are things I've had to put off that I was well on my way to doing, but I don't wonder why they didn't happen because I know it's obvious. <laughs> For sure. Love it. Um, where can people find out more about you? So I'm releasing, I'm in the process of building a personal hub site, which has links to all my projects and social media and contact information. That'll be ready in about a week from today. And today's August 3rd, I think. Um, so that'll be djciclari.com, my name. Incheck's website is alive and well. Uh, Incheck.net? I-N-C-H-E-K. There's no C. I thought I was going to be clever and <laughs> it's ended up causing more confusion having to spell it out all the time, but incheck.net, I-N-C-H-E-K.net uh, has yeah, contact right. information for me and the story um, of Incheck and how to reach us and so forth. And then, uh, but all my social media and everything will be linked on the djsaclari.com site when it's finished. Fantastic. So gang, uh, the website is incheckwithoutac.net. So I-N-C-H-E-K. Precisely. If you yep. wanted to reach out and um, uh, get maybe your, uh, do, uh, do you guys offer an assessment of what's happening with their? A hundred percent. So the best way to do that is if you go to incheck.net, there's an apply now tab and don't be intimidated by that. You're not actually applying for anything. It's about seven fields of information, like your name, your phone number, your email, your website, how much volume you need per month. Um, Fill that out. That opens a lead uh, in our CRM, which is the first step. And then we reach out. And then from there, we can have a conversation. Uh, in order to do an assessment, I'll need some information. I'll need a, a processing statement. All that will be in the follow-up email. We'll have a conversation, and then you're not obligated by any means. We can decide if, if you want to work with us or, or not. Uh, but the first step is that apply now link. is It, it automates everything. For sure. So let's let's consider that as your gift for our audience as a complimentary, uh, is that complimentary? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I will I'll jump on the phone with, with anybody who wants to discuss their processing needs. I mean, it's unusual for the CEO of a company to do, but since I'm on this podcast, happy to, to do it personally. So we can talk about your needs and uh, no charge. Absolutely. So go in there, visit inkcheck.com, click on apply now. .net. .net. I apologize. Inc incheck.net without a c and c at the end so i n c h e k.net click on apply now and uh and get your complimentary assessment on your merchant merchant processing 
and uh, uh, see if there is any any way, shape, or form that maybe you could save fees, get better service, get get more uptime, and or the rest of it. Um, Don, can I ask you a couple of questions, uh, personal questions, before we wrap up? Depends on what they are. <laughs> All right, let me let's see. So, what's a what's a new thing you have tried recently, big or small? A new thing I've tried recently. Um, what's a new thing I've tried recently? Uh, a drink, uh, uh, food, visiting a place. Something Newfoundland. New. I just got back from Newfoundland, and Newfoundland is really interesting. It is the furthest point east in North and South America. It's yeah. the oldest city in this hemisphere and it has a 30 minute time zone differential so it's 90 minutes past eastern time interesting i did not know that <laughs> that it's a 30 minute time zone differential love it what are your top two favorite books of all time ah so the number one and ready for this this is what i tell people if if you read this book and take it to heart you won't need a whole lot of other self-development books. This book covers it all. It's uh -huh. called Craft of the Warrior by Robert Spencer. Craft of the Warrior? Mm-hmm. Yep. Robert Spencer. Yep. Read it a few times. And then what else? Is there any... Uh, another, one, another one that really kind of formed my customer service model early on was called Raving Fans by, I think it was Ken Blanchard. Uh, but it talks about yeah how to create not just happy customers but raving fans. Love it. After the war, you're raving fans. All right. What's one advice that made a massive impact on your life or business? Oh, that's a lot of that. Um... A big one, like a eighty twenty type of like this one was massive for me. Yeah, I, I'm thinking. I'm trying to think of what comes to to mind. Um... Yeah. Okay. So one of my teachers once told me that learning is a process of taking on, whereas mastery is a process of letting go. What do you mean? <laughs> he didn't, he didn't explain it to me. I had to, it was a riddle I had to work on. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll leave it at that and let people interpret it within the context of their own lives. <laughs> oh, how did that apply to you? What did you have to let go of? Lots of things. Um, one of them was the desire, like I said earlier, to have to keep feeling like I'm making progress all day, every day, right? So like I said, I know people that are in personal development that are so obsessive about it that they're blocking themselves because it's all they focus on. Sometimes we need to, like I said earlier, you put a vision out there and then you let it go and give the universe room to to bring it into you, the whole patience thing again. So letting go of the need, need to need an expectation to have things happen a certain way at a certain time and the need to feel an emotional response from those things. So if you think about it, people who are totally obsessed with having to, to do this or that, it's because it creates a certain emotional response and it causes them to feel whatever they need to feel. So they feel like they're making progress, that they're doing something others aren't doing, whatever. Those are all feelings that are fleeting, emotional fle feelings that are fleeting. 
when you're making progress, you know it internally. Your life reflects it. And the people that I know that embody that are very easygoing. They are very, um, oftentimes, they're the ones who aren't even talking about it or talking the most. I remember when I met my one of my spiritual teachers who was a Japanese monk when I was a teenager. Um, I sat down with him and I had all these questions because I was very intellectual and I wanted to ask all these questions that he wouldn't answer and things like that. Um, but when I first sat down with him, I was kind of surprised because he was more interested in talking about the fact that my family is Italian, what my parents do, you know, very what I thought were mundane things, or I thought he was going to talk about all these really deep philosophical things, but no, he was just having a normal conversation. So that was formative for me as well, kind of seeing how he interacts with the world as a legitimate spiritual master. Um, not a lot of talking and chit chat and, and demand and expectation and, and intensity, just very chill. And he, someone who embodies you know, the wisdom of everything that he studied. So I don't know if that, if that helps, but that's maybe related to the letting go versus taking on uh, riddle. How do you identify, like, what was that process like for you? How did you, because this is a big deal, this letting go thing. As I, cause I, and I noticed the, when, I, when I have, uh, by the way, I put this question down. What do I need to go to let go of? And I'll, I'll probably have a list that I need to let go of. But every time I, I let go of things, I have this relaxation in my mind, in my body, in my shoulders, in my neck, in my back. It's like mental and physical. How do you determine what you need to, or how have you determined what you need to let go of? Hmm. Um, it's been a process, obviously, working with my own teachers and within my own life, noticing how obsessing about things creates tension like you're talking about, you know, um, in body work and massage, there's a saying, the issues are in the tissues. So those emotional blocks and create physical tensions. Um, and like you said, when you release them, the body releases, it's all connected, mental, mm -hmm. physical, psychological, spiritual. So the ironic thing is that focusing too much on letting go is not letting go. So how do we find a way to do this? How do we let well, go by, by letting go? It's, it's something I think that each person needs to discover for him or herself. Yeah. I know like we just did spring cleaning and I let go of probably or five or six truckloads of stuff and out of our house. And I'm like, Oh my God, the garage, basement, the closets, this and that. And some of the stuff, I had some attachment. I'm like, I'm not using this. I probably there. should grow yep. this so that yep. someone else could use this, whether it was a piece of clothing or dishes or whatever. But then when I let go of it, I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. I opened up space and there's that great feeling of actually helping someone. And, and I so think you effort. hit on something very important. The laws of the spiritual mirror the laws of the physical so a great process for letting go is literally what you just said cleaning your space organizing mm -hmm. cleaning your space because when you keep your space organized and clean 
you keep your energies organized and clean. The two mirror each other. And when you let go of physical things, you let go of emotional attachments to those physical things, which let go of blocks those emotional attachments were causing. So that might be a great actual physical exercise that, uh, that people can do. Love it. So two questions out of this, the recent discussion was, what do I need to let go of? And the second one I wrote it down as where do I create or have tension that I need to let go of? Good one. And, uh, so I'm going to work on that. So last question is if you had a Facebook or a Google ad where everyone on the planet with access to internet could see, what would your message be for the people of earth? Wow. I didn't, I'm on the spot. I didn't get any time to prepare for this one. <laughs> um, Ah, there's so many ways I can go with this. How would I distill that down? Um, one message. One message. Um, I'm I'm synthesizing it in my head. <laughs> uh, I would say to reflect on how you can bring more light to the world by not obsessing about it. So again, this whole letting go, chasing things um, in your everyday life, how can you contribute to the world? And that might be something like, you know, making the cashier at Starbucks laugh. You know, it doesn't have to be, uh, I'm going to, you know, heal Bye, 2 billion people or, you know, whatever. The, the little things and you don't know the domino effects of those little things. You know, everything has domino effects. So by by doing that, you also, uh, it's more impactful than it sounds because you're also checking your own ego, getting out of your own head, right? You're, you're connected to the world around you, if that makes any sense, yep. rather than comparing yourself. See, I like to say that, Americans are American society is characterized by competitive insecurity. Everybody's looking at everybody else and competing. And, you know, how do I get keeping up with the Joneses? How do I get more of what they have? This guy's got more money. This guy's better looking. This girl, you know, is better at soccer, whatever the case might be to avoid all that comparison. We have to get out of our own way and, accept and be happy and be comfortable with where we are in life. And that comes from having created what you want. And we already talked, everything we've already talked about leads to that process. So in your everyday life, when you're considering how do I add more light to the world, which some may call value or happiness or cheer, whatever word you want to use, you're outside of your own ego and more connected to the world around you. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Don, this has been a really good conversation. You shared a lot of nuggets of wisdom and a lot of good information. Thank you for that. Is there anything that you want to share that we didn't get a chance to talk about? I don't. I don't think so. We went down a lot of different roads, and and um, you know we can always talk again if there's round two or whatever. But I think that's quite a lot of stuff that we yeah we dug out. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh for sure, we dug out a lot. There was a lot of good questions in there. You shared a lot of good processes. So again, if you're watching or listening, go back to the show, review everything. And if you need help with your uh, payment processing, def definitely reach out to Don and his team and they'll set you up and get you all going and uh, provide a good service to you guys. 
Thank you, Don, for joining me. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, if you have any questions about this whole process and what we talked about, put them in the comment below. If you know someone that could benefit from this conversation, either the spiritual part or the, the money side of things, uh, send them the link or tag them in a comment below. And as usual, please like and subscribe to this show on whichever channel you're watching or listening. And I look forward to seeing you in our next episode. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Daily Confidence for Entrepreneurs. Bye now.